This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will Davis, over 300 scientific articles long. And I'm Leah Richards. 26 hours of uninterrupted science content. Of course, when I say interrupted, I mean frequently interrupted by weird tangents about what we did at the weekend and our opinions about the novel Frankenstein. Good book, bad scientist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he wasn't a scientist, he was just mucking about. And we are here with our 50th episode. 50 episodes. We've been doing this for so long. We're into our third year. Yeah. Mm. Gosh. This podcast is nearly as old as our relationship. It's been happening for a lot of it, that's for sure. Most of it. But we're still going strong in podcast and relationship terms. Don't worry, listener at home, it's all going fine. <laughs> I love the idea that people at home are going to be sat there like, oh my god, they're going to need to equalise that at some point. We don't. <laughs> we don't. No, I do genuinely enjoy listening to you shout about science and bad scientists, so this is going fine for me. Well, thank God, because you incited me to <laughs> shout about science in the first place. This is your fault. <laughs> and we have a little bit of a special episode for you for a couple of reasons. First of all, you may have heard something a little bit different at the start of our show, something that wasn't there before. That's because some changes are happening here at Eureka Nerd, and with a few other podcasts Welcome, folks, to the Stimulus Network. We've teamed up with the Cosmic Shed inside the Petri Dish for What It's Earth and the Spooktator to build a platform for sharing our varied and interesting programmes. And at some point in the near future, we'll be doing a little bit of podcast cross-pollination. You might hear some stuff from the Cosmic Shed team, from anyone inside the Petri Dish, from the Spooktator for What It's Earth joining us on the show. You might hear us joining them. The whole point of the network is that there's more programming, sharing our listeners, sharing our interests, and sharing stuff for you, the listener at home, to learn more, listen more, and just generally have a lovelier day. You're welcome. It's a real privilege being the voice of the network. Something else we're celebrating with our 50th anniversary. Just look back on some of our favourite stories from the last 25 and a half hours worth of programming and revisit a few old favourites, see how some people are getting on with their continuing research from fields varying from sharks to space to bees playing football. Going back through the episode list, I feel like you were on the lookout for silly headlines a lot more to start with. It started off that I was receiving a lot more silly headlines in my email inbox. I was just being bombarded with them. By the time that we got to episode about 20 or so when I was having to go out looking for them because I started using spam filters then. I don't know, maybe it's just a more critical eye. Maybe I just wanted to do something more serious with the podcast, but there's always time for a bit of silliness. Also for lobsters. More on that later. For now, talking about time, there is one new piece of research which I'd like to address, which reports itself and has been picked up in a few other outlets as reversing time with quantum computing due to some research from the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, and you know what you said about silly research and silly headlines? I mean, one of the problems we've got here is that quantum physics is... how should I best put this? It's nonsense! I was reading this today at lunchtime, doing my preparation to record tonight, and oh god, it gave me a headache that lasted all afternoon. Honest to goodness. 
we have an electron and we're pretty sure where the electron is but over time we get less sure where the electron is and therefore it's more chaotic and that's quantum physics what it's not just quantum physics that is time travel qubits which could be used to improve quantum computing maybe probably or something if you want more quantum nonsense then time travel back to episode 25 we had our resident quantum expert scary boots talk us through a few quantum headlines and they were all uniformly nonsense i love that we spoke to someone whose focus was materials science and engineering about quantum physics because we know exactly one physicist and we're going to make the most of them if you get too close to quantum it gets a bit weird you get a bit weird and <laughs> i mean you've met physicists you've seen what they're like people who've met scary obviously know that they are not exactly like other physicists in all of the ways they are an outstanding physicist in many regards Anyway, physicists reversing time using their quantum computer, essentially what they mean is they reversed the direction of entropy with some individual subatomic particles, and that might help make quantum computing better, I guess. That's about as much as I can understand if you are capable of getting knee-deep in this press release and figuring out what the rest of it means, let us know. I have a BA, I'm not cut out for this. I think I might just defer to the tweet which brought this to my attention from Robert McNeese on Twitter, who, in response to the headline of Physicists Reverse Time Using Quantum Computer, simply said, They did no such thing. There's so much in this press release explaining how... How it didn't do what they say it did. But also, I mean, I really appreciate that they've gone into detail explaining the underlying concepts of entropy and time having an effect on these particular equations, even though it doesn't have an effect in most of physics. But also, oh, my head hurts. Let's get back to the squishy science. While the science doesn't get very much squishier than our first episode all those many moons ago, episode one, Biology, Bagpipes and Bias, we looked at some good fun stories, some interesting stuff, like... Lobsters wrap their feces in little packages so they can eat jellyfish. And that, having learned this information, we might be able to use it to farm lobsters for food. Lots of people are talking about moving us on to a more insect protein-based diet as a species, as a, an ecosystem. And I guess crustaceans are a good bridging point between the meat that most of us are used to and, like, crickets and stuff. Does that make crickets land shrimp? Or does that make lobsters sea spiders? Uh, no, woodlice are land shrimp. Gross and okay. Woodlice are great. And crunchy, apparently. I've never eaten one. Well, mm, I haven't eaten one that I can remember. Apparently I used to put lots of stuff in my mouth when I was two. <laughs> the face you're making right now is amazing. Listeners, he's managed to almost entirely unhinge his <laughs> jaw in horror at the thought that I, as a completely unthinking id monster of a toddler, might have crunched down a woodlouse or two. That's awful. Apparently the slug was much worse. <laughs> you have eaten bugs as an adult! They were dried and crispy and coated in barbecue <laughs> dust. <laughs> Having crickets on a plate covered in Dorito dust flavorings, fine. 
I can only imagine sucking down a slug like one of the grubs in The Lion King or something. Uh, no, thank you. Tiny children don't know what they're doing. They don't know why eating a slug is a bad idea. They don't care. I care. I don't want slugs in any mouths. <laughs> no, sir. We're talking about something nearly 25 entire years ago. It's news to me. In more news, maybe we should refer toddler size you to reasons to not lick a toad. Like, just keep stuff out of your mouth. I mean, once upon a time my mum told me not to play with a tin can and I did, and now I've got a big skull that goes halfway up my little finger, so I don't think Tiny Me would have listened. <laughs> she didn't give a single solitary f I forget, did we ever do a story about children being contrary? I don't remember doing one. Has anyone even really needed to do the research on that? The children are, like you say, tiny id monsters with very little regard for themselves or their surroundings. Maybe it's all the testosterone. We know that testosterone makes you make poor decisions. We covered that back in episode 14. Are you saying I make poor decisions because I'm gay? Well, not because. <laughs> Just in addition to. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes in relation to, distracted by pretty girl, bad decisions ensue. Oops. Speaking of bad decisions, the researchers from that story back in episode 14 about testosterone making men less likely to question their impulses have kept up the work. They've got a couple of other stories that have come out more recently, including that boosting testosterone by administering it to normal testosterone-leveled men seems to lower their inhibitions so much that they will start craving and purchasing higher status products that offer no other material benefit apart from the fact that they are shinier and have higher status attached to them. Okay, but in relation to other research done on psychology in both animal models and humans, possession of higher status items and the appearance of being a higher status male can help attract more of the people you want to shag, so that might have something to do with it. More testosterone making you more desirous of people to shag. And I seem to remember when we were talking about gender in A-level psychology, something about men with an extra Y chromosome having more testosterone and being, like, more overall. Given the stuff about testosterone and body hair and... Don't know that it's necessarily a direct correlation, looking at some people in the room. I'm trying to think of the highest status thing that I, a man who may fit some of those descriptions, could claim to have. It's me. <laughs> thank you? <laughs> Either thank you or you're welcome. I'm not sure which. Well, apart from the high-status-seeking research that's also come from the same team at the University of Pennsylvania, they also shared some authors with research conducted with the California Institute of Technology, which has dug into more psychology. This is going back to October 2018 now. Again, maybe tying into making poor decisions or not quite making decisions, trying to figure out why you can't decide what you want for lunch. I think possibly this is why after all these years I'm still a fussy eater, because if I wasn't, I would have option paralysis basically all the time. You know, if there's only three things on a menu that I could possibly countenance the idea of putting in my mouth, then it's not that much of a problem. 
Yeah, I mean, when you're looking down the menu and all you've got is chips, slugs, and wood lice, then <laughs> what are you to do? Hey, the bug-eating phase was before the phase where I reverted to eating only sausage and chips and brown flakes all the time. I've got a lot better. I feel like I found quite a good middle ground between eating bugs and eating only beige food. Both sci-fi dystopias of their own end. Yeah. Sci-fi dystopias, or just Greg's of the future. Do we know what goes into a vegan sausage roll? Is it Satan? Is it beans? Probably not bugs. Do pescatarians eat bugs? Is that allowed under, like, pescatarian rules? We'll have to find some in the street and hurl a bag of ladybugs at them, see what happens. <laughs> just start chowing down, then we'll have our answer. <laughs> it's just not necessarily conclusive, but sure. If you want a professional quote about option paralysis, then you don't have to look any further than the author of this and the other testosterone studies, Colin Camara, who sums it up as, Essentially, our eyes are bigger than our stomachs. When we think about how many choices we want, we may not be mentally representing the frustrations of making the decision. What is mental effort? What is thinking cost? That much is poorly understood, he reckons. So, next time you're behind someone in the queue at whatever fast food chain or whatever grocers you're going to, and they are looking at the menu and going, mm, oh, be sympathetic, be patient, and make your decision early, so you don't get caught in the same trap as them. Some more research, which has been followed up on, can be found just an episode earlier, episode 13, Brain Training, Bacteria Talking, Racist Robots, and Making Rain. We were looking at the replication crisis in science, that when you are conducting research and you get it published, you think, great, good, that's been approved by my peers, that many journals seem to think that that's kind of a done deal and they won't take any more consideration about the question. Even though when they're teaching you about the scientific method when you're a wee little kiddiwink in school, repeating an experiment is part of the process. You've got to do it over to make sure it wasn't just a fluke. And with that in mind, the press release for exacerbating the replication crisis in science, replication studies are often unwelcome, has been cited, has been built upon, has been worked on by a bunch of other teams who have published their research in a host of journals where they've got on with it and they've started repeating experiments with the most willing test experiments of all, undergrads. Undergrads are the fuel of any psychology department. You can get them to do most of the work. So we've got one paper here about the Collaborative Replications and Education Project, or CREP, where they are going back and repeating some experiments to make sure that lessons from each of these experiments is being passed on to the next generation of scientists. And indeed, that there's a ever-growing amount of data to use for meta-analysis. Indeed, on the publication side of things, Andrew W.K. Young has looked at the publication bias of replications of meta-analysis looking at surveys of literature a couple of times over, and things are not looking much better than they were back in episode 13. This also bears out for a computer simulation of the impact of publication bias on the meta-analysis of scientific literature by Georg P. Müller from the University of Freiburg. It all gets a bit statistical, but he does note that there are situations where certain forms of publication bias have unexpectedly favourable results on the disclosure of truth by meta-analysis. Thinking about the squishy beginnings we had, we have had a lot of nature stories on the podcast. I mean, you've got a biology degree. That doesn't seem that unexpected. We also had an entire special about quantum physics. I don't have a quantum degree. I think nature is just a good source of consistently surprising, consistently interesting news, personally. And also you get some really good headlines, like 
lemurs are weird because Madagascar's fruit is weird. What's not to like about that as a string of words? It's the kind of headline that you see and think, well, yeah, I guess. Or the jet-powered whistling mice from episode four. Rereading that today was delightful. Like, A, mice sing, and B, they make that noise in a completely unexpected way. Also, that might be how bats do ultrasonic beeping, and we might be able to use it to interpret what's happening with mice when we give them mind-altering substances. It's, it's got everything. There's a lot going on inside a mouse mouth. And here we demonstrate that Will is not a mouse because he can't whistle at all, let alone in the manner of a jet engine. Whoosh. That's the closest I can do for you. Bless. One of the nature stories that we actually got to chat about with something of an expert in brains and biology, Sadie Witowski, from PH Drinking back in episode 18, we looked at cockatoos who beat out their rhythm, quote, like Ringo Starr. Which you laughed at because you know that Ringo was not even the best drummer in the Beatles. I just think people are really hard on Ringo. In many ways, he's the best Beatle. He certainly played a lot less banjo than Paul McCartney, so that's a plus. And also, he isn't still trying to sing, so that's a plus. Have you seen his art? Listeners at home, if you do want to brighten your mood, go look at the Microsoft Paint artworks of Ringo Starr. It's really going to do the job. If you're ever feeling down and even the jet-whistling mice haven't elevated your state of being, then go check that out. Anyway, drumming parrots, that was the point. That was the point until follow-up research by the same team looking at not just drumming parrots, but the drama of parrots. Straight up, honest-to-goodness parrots soap opera. Love triangles, affairs, fights, everything. The swift parrot, specifically, dwelling in Tasmania. When, in the 1800s, the sugar glider was introduced, it went around doing a lot of parrot murder. Which is weird, because they haven't got very much sugar in them. What the sugar gliders do is get into the parrot nests and kill the brooding females, so now there are a lot fewer female parrots than there are male parrots. And it's all kicking off. This might come back to that testosterone research we were talking about earlier. I don't know if that's the hormonal system that birds have, but by the time that you're left with a vast amount of males to a very small amount of females, the sneaky sex on the side, the love triangles, the fighting, it seems to follow a pretty human-like trajectory. Professor Heinsohn even says that it's happening in other birds, reptiles, and even humans in some parts of the world. The obvious cost of females being harassed by too many males, well, males are forced to fight for females, so the overall population takes a hit as a consequence because they're having fewer babies. And he emphasises that the loss of so many females can change the balance of the sexes, as well as the whole mating and social system. Parrots typically are monogamous, but the research found many broods had babies from more than one father in them. And there were lots of single male parrots hanging around and harassing the females until the females just gave up and had sex with them, possibly just to get them off their backs. And God, I wish that wasn't something that can be generalised to human populations. I wish, oh yeah, I had sex with him so he'd shut up and go away, wasn't a thing that happens. This is why animal models are important, I guess. 
So we can look at nature and go, oh, what's the problem here? Too many men. But on the other hand, have we not also looked at studies that reckon in human populations men behave better when women are more scarce because they want to hang on to them? We need to find a nice middle ground of not just addressing a number balance, but also respect, which I don't think we can really expect from the parrots. But we should expect from human men. Again, testosterone is kind of like poison, it seems. I mean, testosterone and general societal ideas of what masculinity is and what a man should be and how we socialise boy children as opposed to girl children and uh, gender. What a mess. Well, a healthy relationship did come up in episode 40 with the research on the power of we, about having a supportive and collaborative attitude in your relationship. Another piece of follow-up research to that Silver linings come from partner support, research says. Specifically, having another party in your life who can look at things and help you to reframe them in a more positive light might be, like, really good for your general adjustment to the world. Now this particular piece of follow-up research they've conducted in some very high-stress environments for a couple. The aftermath of a breast cancer diagnosis. 52 couples coping with breast cancer wore an electronically activated recorder, or ear, over one weekend to record 50 seconds every nine minutes during their just general comings and goings. Whilst they were awake, you pop on the recorder, go about your day, and it'll record just about a minute out of every 10 minutes or so. Researchers looking at that recording track out the positive reframing and successful coping and stress reduction offered by partners and find that spouses can help with coping by positively reframing cancer experiences and other negative experiences offering this silver lining and social support. There is a little bit of caution dropped in by Megan Robbins, psychology professor at UCR and author of the study. To push your partner into positivity when they're not ready is not advisable. But as they're talking about word choice, let's get into this. Reframing is a thing that you're basically taught to do if you do therapy for your general mental well-being reasons. And it's always about putting a more positive spin on things rather than bulldozing through the misery that you're experiencing with positivity that doesn't regard it. So you can be like, instead of, oh, I've got breast cancer. Oh, but you're, you're still alive right now. So that's good. It's, yes, there's breast cancer right now, but that's giving us opportunities to check in with each other and take more care of each other or reconnect with people who we haven't been as much in touch with lately or you've made really good friends through the support group. Not a laser beam of sunshine positivity, but silver lining. Robbins mentions right at the end of the press release, coping can be a social activity. And in these days of continuing political uncertainty, we should all be coping as a social activity. Coping feels like the most you can do some days. Doing it in company is... Better. <laughs> and whilst we do try and keep things current with the research, there are some weeks, some months, some episodes which feel either too prescient or like we have to say the same thing too many times. Like, how many times have we talked about saving the world with green energy? So many, and we even focused on a whole episode of it. In fact, it's probably our most listened to of all of these now 50 episodes. It's up there, for sure. And have we saved the world yet? 
Uh, but if um, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos would like to really, really save the world and immortalise themselves as the man who saved the world, get in touch. We can direct you. Mm-hmm. We can definitely help out. Or if we can't quite save the world with all of your money, then it will at least apparently feel as good as a night of sleep. Yeah, I still haven't had one of those. It's been 39 episodes. Yeah, and I still don't sleep well. What's news? <laughs> when we recorded that, it had also been well over 20 years of my life where I hadn't had a good night's sleep. I don't, I don't get a good night's sleep. I'm sure there's a silver lining to this somewhere as well. It means that sometimes you can wake up in the middle of the night and hear me saying bizarre things. So thank you, dear listener, for joining us for this very special episode, and all the other episodes as well. If you've not caught up on any of them, go back and listen to it, because it's not like the science is going to be out of date. It's not like the world is any less ready for saving with green energy. It's not like lobsters are going to have changed how they digest jellyfish. There's really anywhere that you can dive in. It's all good. I mean, honestly, just flick through the titles and see what catches your eye, or flick through the reading lists and see if there's any headlines that you'd really, really like to hear us talk about. And if you want more science content, then, well, that's what the Stimulus Network is there for. If you are into ecology and environmental justice, then for what its Earth is there for you. If you're looking to hear more about science and science fiction, the Cosmic Shed, the team behind Inside the Petri Dish are actually some of the key organisers to the Cardiff Science Festival, and they did a whole live episode of their podcast called save the world, so that's right up our alley too. And all of the paranormal research going on with the Spooktator is coming at it with a very scientific bent. So if you really want to expand your mind, then dive into some of their episodes too. They've got a couple of seasons worth to jump on in, again, at any point. Listen to us, listen to our friends, share us with your friends, and if you particularly love Eureka Nerd, the podcast you're listening to right now, and want to help us offset the costs of hosting and equipment and all that good stuff, then you can make a donation to our Kofi. That's Kofi.com forward slash Eureka Nerd. Or you can find us on Twitter at Eureka Nerdcast, on Facebook forward slash Eureka Nerd, or drop us a line at Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. That's Eureka Nerdcast at gmail.com. We're going to leave you with just one more piece of research from the University of Illinois at Chicago. We talked about the silver linings for clouds, well, here's maybe some of the smells to go with them. White people's eating habits produce the most greenhouse gases. It's because they're richer, on average, than everybody else. I was making a fart joke. And I'm making a serious comment about the way white colonialism has downtrodden the rest of the population of the Earth. That's the show, really, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> but until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.